four speakers, and we have uh, limited time, so we have to start. I wanted to say that we have a slight adjustment in terms of the mode, because we had a family emergency uh, that our first speaker has to leave early, and so we'll provide him with uh, five to ten minutes of discussion time right after the first presentation, and then we'll collect and uh, enjoy, like, as, as usual, the, the three later presentations, though I would ask our final speaker also to sit. I know he's there, um, so he will come. So in that case, I think I'll, I'll open the floor for our first speaker, and that is um, Iqbal Achter, who's Associate Professor from Florida International University. Um, yeah, with the announced title, The Indic Chronicle of Light from Zanzibar, yeah, okay. an exciting paper. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for, um, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, Matthew, uh, Osman Khan, uh, I really appreciate you guys um, allowing me to talk. Um, my work is, is going to be a little bit different, I think, um, compared to some, some of the other things that you've done and seen, but um, basically what I'm working on is a manuscript. It's a manuscript that I found in Zanzibar, um, dated to 1852, and it was sent by the Koja community of Bombay to Zanzibar. It was sent to two port cities, the city of Zanzibar and the city of Kilwa, um, which were major, major trading uh, posts. Um, well, okay, before I get to that. Um, and so basically what I did is I found this manuscript, and it's called the Nurnama, um, and so what I'm interested in doing is like figuring out the intellectual history of the manuscript. So how did, um, what were the ideas that were distilled over time that were written down in Bombay in the 19th century and then made its way to Zanzibar, right? So I'm gonna, um, I, I want to sort of work a little bit more on the professor's keynote, um, which is also like redefining what African is. And so, um, of course, we have this whole thing where we're decolonizing African studies. Um, but Could you yeah, I'll, I'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll get into it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to start with the definition before we begin. So I think kind of what I want to do is sort of to think about African then as well um, as not just black, um, but African can be Asians and other races of people who have lived in Africa for centuries and also have an identity that's African, right? And so that's why I would categorize this manuscript as African because it's been in Africa for 150 years, right? So rather than saying, oh, this is an Indian manuscript in East Africa, I would also argue that we can sort of broaden the idea of what Africa means beyond just being black, right? Um, and of course, black has its own connotations, but I think that sort of really widening our understanding of sort of settlement in Africa. So this is the community that I work with. They're known as the Koja, right? So the community itself is a, is a Gujarati and Sindhi mercantile group um, that sort of developed in uh, around the 15th and 16th centuries as a caste, as a Muslim caste, right? As a, as a trading caste. Um, and around the 18th century and 19th century started sort of migrating all throughout the Western Indian Ocean, literal. So this is a map of Koja settlements in the year 1899, right? So by the, the, the end of the 19th century, the Koja communities from India had spread all throughout the Western Indian Ocean literal, right? So the, the homeland is here, and the, top, uh, the place that I'm talking about is sort of what would have been um, Germany, East Africa, and also part of the Zanzibari Omani Sultanate, right? So this is the, the um, so, 
right? So what I'm gonna do is start with this manuscript and then try to figure out what are the ideas and how did those ideas percolate all throughout the Islamic world that eventually ended up in India and then finally in East Africa, all right? So this is the main manuscript that I'm translating. Um, what you see here, the language here is in the Koja Sindhi script. So it's in the caste script of the Koja that's now extinct, right? But the language itself is in the Gujarati language. Okay? So it was a large uh, script, and it was uh, the, used by the Koja community, which is an Ismaili, Ithnashri, and Sunni community um, that, that developed a schism um, by the Aga Khan uh, in, in the, the early to mid-19th century, right? attributed to Pierre Mashaikh in the year 1688. So what is this manuscript about? Right? Um, it, was, uh, it was written in, in 1852, sent to Zanzibar and Kilwa, and it's part of the genre of literature known as the Kahani. So the Kahani literally means a story, right? And this is a tale that had sort of religious significance. It was recited in ritual context, okay? Um, so it has a narrative structure, um, and essentially what the story is, is that at the beginning was Nur, Nur Khuda, or, or the light of God, right? From the light of God, then Muhammad was created. So it's an esoteric sort of Sufi Shi text, right? Um, and from the light of God, then from God's essence, he emanated seven rivers. Um, in each of the rivers, the light of Muhammad was immersed for a thousand years. After 7,000 years, he emerged from the light and actually formed a body. Then as the body sort of emerged, it began to shake. And as the body shook, different parts, uh, drops of light uh, emerged from that body and created the world. So it created the prophets, it created the elements. The elements themselves are not considered to be Muslim, right? So in a way, Muhammad is predating Adam as the first prophet, um, it's sort of, it's sort of a, a pre-existent prophet, right? Um, then the elements are asked to, uh, sh to testify that they believe that there's only one God and Muhammad is the prophet. Um, and uh, sort of it's connected also to Yunani medicine, the idea of the elements and things like that, right? Eventually the, the, t the story ends with every aspect of our worship is then um, a reflection of the body of Muhammad. So when you do the tasbih or the, the rosary, that's actually the hand of Muhammad, right? So there's this sort of esoteric dimension to what's happening, all right? So the question is, um, what is this text? Why did we get this? How did it come to Africa through the Koja community, right? And so what I'm trying to do is understand it as a living tradition. Um, and so the criteria for the selection of texts are based on the title and the content. So what I did is I basically tried to find all texts that, that have the term nunama, nunameh, um, in sort of different sort of languages in the Islamic world. And then there's certain texts that have the same theme, but are, because nama is itself a, a Persian and Turkish term, it's not used necessarily by chains of transmission that are Arabic. So you would look at hikayat, for instance, in, in Indonesia. Right? So I'm gonna go through this really quickly, but um, just sort of understand that what I'm trying to do essentially is to try to figure out um, the, the origin of the ideas, right? Okay, so what did I try to do? I went to national state archives in East and Southern Africa, Central, Western, and South Asia, and digital anthropology, looking at visualizations of the tradition itself, and then what are the oral and oral dimensions of sort of understanding, and, uh, understanding this as a living tradition, right? So this is um, what I'm gonna show you, but this is sort of a visual representation, right? So over the course of four centuries, the Nurnama has been written in many different languages. We see Turkic, Indonesian, Persian, and African sort of versions of this text, right? Over the course of, the, of four centuries. And so I've, cat I've cataloged and sort of working on translations of all these texts. To understand 
understand essentially what are the streams of ideas of Nur Nama, the Nur of Muhammad as the cre creator of the world um, within Turkic language sources, Persian language sources, Arabic language sources, Indic language sources, and then coming into Africa in the mid 19th century, right? So I'm just gonna go through this real quickly because I don't think I'll have a time. But, um, so the, the Koja version that ends up in Zanzibar in the 19th century is based on the Satpanti tradition, which is a shrine that's outside Ahmedabad in Gujarat, right? So this was written around the 15th to 16th century, right? And it's performed as a dua, as a supplication, right? So this is a illuminated uh, illumination of what the Nur of Muhammad would look like, right? And we see here sort of uh, the light here, the shahada, and then you have the parasol on top, which is a sign of kingship in sort of Indic manuscripts, right? So there are very few illustrations of the manuscript, partly because it's a vernacular tradition. So I'm sort of working here epistemologically um, and, you know, sort of working through the the South Asian studies um, as it's understood in France, right? Um, sort of really highlighting vernacular ideas. Um, so another uh, tradition, one of the things that we see here is that the tradition that is itself contested within South Asia, right? So the Gujaratis also would say, for instance, on the top you'll see of this, of this text, uh, the Om sign. So you actually have uh, Hindus who are actually claiming this is a Hindu text, even though it's very clearly a Muslim text, right? So we have sort of a modern-day idea of uh, the Nur of Muhammad as Om Prakash. So you have sort of a, 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 an appropriation of Nur Muhammadi within sort of the Hindu tradition itself, right? Um, you have the Bengali tradition, 17th century. Um, rather than it being a story, we see poetic forms, right? So in Bengali and Tamil, um, which are ancient languages, and Tamil especially is, a, is the only surviving classical language of India, um, we see sort of the poetic form of the language itself absorbing these sorts of ideas. So we see a very um, highly sort of um, uh, formal poetic structure in the, in the transmission of the idea. We see Sindhi, which is one of the oldest ones, and of course, Sindh having its own sort of history within the Islamic world. Um, it's still used till, till today, and it's used as a teaching text in most madrasas in Sindh, uh, Sunni, Sufi sort of oriented madrasas. Of course, you have the Indo-Persian um, materials, and here you have a very interesting connection with the Mahdavis, um, which is a, a 19th century sort of uh, community that believed that there was a Mahdi had, that had come, and this is uh, one of the texts that's being used by it. Um, all the way to the, to the northeast of India, we have um, uh, the Sileti, which this script is now extinct, but it's sort of a, a form of Bengali Assamese. Um, the Punjabi tradition, um, and I kind of just wanted to really quickly pray, play for you what it sounds like, if you have a minute. So just sort of understanding that it's a, it is an oral tradition. It is a... <laughs> Yeah, so it's, it, was, it was an oral tradition and still is an oral tradition for um, large parts of the Indic world. Um, you have the Urdu tradition, of course, um, Siraiki, which is a language that sort of um, spans Punjab and Sindh. Um, and of course, the most interesting one of the Indic traditions is the Tamil version. So Tamil is its own language, is a Dravidian language. And what we see with the Dravidian languages is even though Arabic, uh, Turkish and Persian ideas come into Tamil, um, there ha it has its own trajectory. Tamil is a Dravidian language. The majority of North Indian languages are uh, Indo-European. And so you have sort of a linguistic barrier that actually takes a different vector of Arabic ideas into the Tamil language, right? And here you see the, the story of the creation of the prophet is actually connected to um, Tirumuti, which is sort of a sacred um, ceremony of the cutting of the hair, right, of, the, of the, the celestial hair of the prophet that then falls to earth. 
Um, you have Indo-Caribbean tradition, so the text makes its way all the way to the Caribbean um, in Trinidad, um, and you have a transliteration of Urdu and then sort of translated into English. It was used in the Maulud uh, tradition in Trinidad. It, of course, makes its way to Tokyo in Japan uh, by Indi Asian communities that are there. Um, Indonesia, of course, as well, the Nornama sort of um, uh, using the term Hikayat and Nur, Nur Muhammad. Of course, this is not something that's completely new. Of course, the Nur Muhammadi tradition is well known and well documented. But what I'm trying to understand is particularly this narrative of, of the creation of, of, of Nur Muhammadi um, sort of in light. Then, of course, the biggest one and, and the one that's also um, another living tradition outside of the Indic, um, the second largest tradition of the Nur Nama is the... Um, is in, uh, in Central Asia. So we have the Uzbek version, we have the Kazakh version, the Tatar version, and I wanted just to play with, play for you a little bit of, oh, wait, I think I have to, sorry. I just wanted to play the Tatar version very quickly, because that's also a very interesting one. Sorry. So this is in Tatar, um, which is the, the language of the Tatar uh, community that's in uh, Crimea and, uh, and sort of in Russia today. Um, and so this is a um, visual representation in Tatar um, of the Nur, Nama, it's, of the Nur uh, Nama tradition itself. And you see Rasul Nur Nama Sharif and then the names of the, uh, the prophets that are here. Um, of course, one of the major vectors into India is the Iranian tradition, and you have uh, the, the Persian materials. And then, of course, the oldest version of it is an Ottoman text. Um, written in the 17th century, early 17th century, by Jafar Iani. Um, that's, that's sort of more of a, of a, of a larger sort of uh, narrative for, for Sufi orders, right? So what, what, are we, um, what am I trying to do by gathering all the Nornama texts around the world, right? Um, it seems to be just an insane sort of project. Um, what I'm trying to do is a couple things. Uh, one is trying to understand what are the forms of ritual use uh, of the text, right? So we see poetic and prose forms, uh, shorter supplications, narrative prayers, um, and the Indic traditions, food, right? So what are they, they, what are they being used for? Uh, protection from the evil eye, uh, ease the passing of death, forgiveness of sin, uh, and ensure um, one's daily bread. What is the larger significance of the project, though, right? It's really trying to understand how an Indic imaginary sort of emerges, right, in the medieval period as connected to the, the ritual and sort of uh, intellectual traditions of Central Asia and sort of the Persian-speaking Persian world, and how that then is filtered into India through the different languages, right? So part of what I'm trying to understand is what are the main themes that are, that are emerging? How do the languages uh, facilitate, right? So think about something like, until the 19th century, most of these languages are using the Arabic script. What happens once the Arabic script ceases to be sort of used, and you have these new scripts, right, that, that impede essentially the, the, the transmission of knowledge, right? Um, how, what are linguistic geographical barriers um, to the development of these ideas? Another thing that's really important is also understanding the similarity between Sufi and Shi ideas of Nur and Nur Muhammadi, right? And I think that's something that's really important is that the idea that this is only Sufi or this is Shi, I mean, clearly there are communities, Ismaili, Ithnashri, uh, Sufi, Sunni, um, 
different communities that are using this text, right? So sort of what, how are they negotiating this idea across sort of what would later be much more distinct boundaries of sort of, uh, of Islamic sort of theology. And of course, the, the way that these ideas are moving around, part of the way that they're moving around is through mercantile communities, right? So these mercantile communities are moving around. And they're taking ideas, texts, and things like that with them. So by charting the ideas, the flow of ideas, we're also able to understand scholarly movements, right? In, in ideas into India and eventually sort of throughout the sort of the, the Indian Ocean literal, right? Um, and of course, part of the reason why, I mean, we saw with the timeline, there are many different Indic versions. Uh -huh. um, there are many different Indic versions of the Nurnama. Why are there so many versions of the Nurnama in, in the Indic languages? And, and I would argue, of course, that um, there are many different indigenous ideas within India that made its reception so much uh, easier, right? So you have the tantric idea of Shakti, the Vedic idea of Purusha, that's part of it. It's connected already to um, Near Eastern traditions. Uh, and Kabbalism as well. Um, part of what we're able to see with the traditions that come into India and then eventually into East Africa is what ideas are successful in penetrating India and then going into Africa and which were not and why, why were those ideas not, not there. So of course it's a larger, um, they're political ideas as well. So you have sort of in, in the Persian, Turkic and sort of Indic versions, a very prominent placing of Mahmud of Ghazna, who's one of the first sort of major um, people that come into India, attack India, and sort of help to be, begin the era of Muslim rule, right, in India. Um, of course, by the 20th, the, the early 21st century, the tradition declines very rapidly. Um, the different modernist pol uh, policies that also help to uh, decrease or sort of uh, de-emphasize the tradition itself. So um, if we know by in the 18th century and the 19th century, these, uh, these traditions were widely spread in, in Central Asia. Now, for instance, in Azerbaijan, it doesn't exist at all, whereas in Uzbekistan, it's still being used. Now, why is that and what happened, right? Um, so that's basically what the project is. It's a larger project. I would like your help in terms of trying to think about what are ways that I can better conceptualize it, what are materials in East Africa, West Africa that could be used that are related to it, that would help sort of understand the connections of, of, of ideas um, that, you know, sort of, that are similar. Um, a lot of you guys are working on Sufi traditions, and of course, you, there would be definitely parallels in sort of uh, Arabic manuscripts and things like that. Um, but really, sort of what happened, right? I mean, how did these ideas percolate in creating sort of larger currents? So it's a big intellectual history project, but I'm hoping to... Um, to use this one manuscript in Africa as a way of trying to understand sort of what was happening over four centuries in the Islamic world. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, Thanks, guys. You would have had another couple of minutes, so we, we can use yeah. those for our Q&A. And uh, I mean, even though it's, it's, of course, unfortunate why we, we kind of have to treat you separately now, but I think we can also use it very usefully as a like a historical stepping stone into the yeah. contemporary papers that are now to follow, and indeed, which all play out on the East African coast. Mm. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, uh, found very interesting the way that you started off here, this idea of also expanding Africa and bringing in sort of an Islamic foundational text that is also foundational to these uh, particular communities in East Africa of the Khojas and um, um, perhaps you could add a little bit more there now, because I think yeah. in this presentation yeah, 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 this, sure. this hardly featured, but let me just say a few, a few other things sure, first, sure. because the written paper, I think that there you, uh, you, you basically follow this group, yeah, yeah. and it's sort of uh, transitions, and uh, it's traveling, and it's splitting up sort of scenarios, uh, and within which this text it continues to be foundational. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think uh, this, this example of, uh, of, of these dynamic um, and, and changing vernacularizations um, that with, with additional languages, according to the social circumstances, I think that's something maybe that you could uh, comment a little bit more upon. Um, and I was struck by one um, point in your paper, and then I'll um, give you opportunity to answer that and open up for two, three questions. But what I found very interesting there is that we have this community of the Hojas, about you'll, you'll explain to us a little bit more. But um, I've also had, you know, during my fieldwork experience, quite some contact with some of them. And it seems they're also a very organized yeah. sort of community. So they're also, I mean, they're facing themselves as a very, uh, seeing themselves very organized with these, uh, with these um, scenarios that, that are difficult to handle. But there was a comment that you made in, in saying that the way in which then this, the translation, the new translation of this text was uh, absorbed and implemented had an eye onto its basically its potential openness mm -hmm. to the local Muslim neighbors. And that I found extremely interesting to read there um, because maybe the reputation of that group by those neighbors would not be such yeah. that they have this. And so I really wanted to, uh, you to comment on that aspect and contextualize it a little bit for us. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, should, should I respond? Yeah. So maybe okay. give right. us an answer on these, these aspects and yeah, then yeah, yeah. we'll take a couple more questions. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, I mean, you know, when you do field work in East Africa, one of the things that you see is that um, the Asian communities seem to be very much apart from the other communities that exist. I think that there's definitely a lot more um, interaction within sort of these Asian communities themselves. Um, so I, th I think that ideas were, um, I don't know, this is like even, this is a very good question because I'm still also trying to think about, um, I feel that the story, it just, it, because it was a vernacular story, it allowed many different communities to put their imprint on the story. So the story changes. So like when it goes to a Sunni community, for instance, we see the beginning of it mo modified with the beginning of the four caliphs, right? When it goes to the Shia, it starts off with, with you know, with the Ismailis, then it'll be with Aga Khan. Um, and then the story itself then, um, I think it, it was vernacularized in a way that allowed, um, yeah, I don't know, I, th I think it allowed the existing sort of religious um, and cultural structure to, um, uh, to, to sort of, um, I don't know, how would I put it? Mm, kind of to make it one, one of its own. So when the, I'm, I'm working on the Tamil version right now. Um, and the Tamil version is based on the largest epic in Tamil um, called the Sira Puranam. So it's written by this guy named uh, Omar Balawar um, in the 17th century. And so what he does is he basically uses the Puranam structure um, and then incorporates the story within it. So I, I don't, I'm still thinking about sort of how to answer your question. Um, but I, I feel like there's a certain elasticity to the story and the narrative itself that I'm trying to figure out, yeah. And perhaps Champi said, uh, was asking about the yeah. Hojas. Um, maybe you could say just a... I know, it has a bit... I know the I, uh, yes, I know exactly. Oh, okay. but, so that's why I was picking up on Chanfi. So okay. Maybe you could just say a sentence on sure. who the Kodias are for those who are not familiar with it. And I'm looking for a hand or two if, if, if anyone has one. Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so the Kodias are, I mean, they're basically, they're, 
there were, there were major political changes that were happening around the 15th, 16th century in India. And of those changes, what you had is the development of new mercantile networks, right? And you have sort of Islamization through different Sufi um, saints that are taking place all throughout sort of the Indus Valley, the River Valley, right? And so what was happening is around these saints, there were communities that were developing, right? So there were these charismatic saints, communities would develop, and then as part of that, then um, certain communities were able to latch on to new mercantile routes that were developing, right? Um, between sort of Persia, um, and then also, you know, sort of uh, trading routes that uh, took them into Central Asia and sort of in, in the Indian Ocean. So the Kojar are one of these groups that essentially develop in southern Punjab, uh, upper Sindh, and they migrate their, their way over the course of centuries down the Indus Valley. And as they migrate down, they absorb other castes. So sometimes lower caste people, sometimes different other castes that could be helpful to their mercantile efforts. And they develop a, a large sort of, um, I don't know, maybe meta-caste known as the Koja. Right? And they're essentially in Gujarat and Sindh. And then in the eight, late 18th and early 19th century, because of colonization and also other push factors, like famines and things like that, they start to spread out all throughout sort of the Indian Ocean region. And they, became, they become very important for the economic development of East Africa um, and also sort of um, you know, the exporting of, of you know, ivory, other things uh, out, of, out of Africa, and then to sort of the importing of, of, of goods. And they develop uh, a whole chain of what's called the dukkha or these like small stores um, all throughout sort of uh, all, you know, into Congo and other places. So essentially it's a caste trading community that had its own language and script and religious traditions that over time then became interacted with the larger sort of uh, Swahili sort of Islamic uh, milieu in Zanzibar and other places and became more normatively Muslim. Ah, so when the Aga Khan, okay, so the community itself we would describe as originally Hindu Mohammedan, and then the Aga Khan comes from uh, Iran in 1815 uh, uh, and claims that he is the living Imam of the Kojas and that all property and wealth of the Kojas have to be given to the Imam. And so there's a series of legal cases whereby the majority accede to his demands and say that they're Ismaili uh, and two schismatic groups, uh, Sunni and, and Ifnashri Shia, uh, secede from the community or they're outcasted from the community. Um, and then some of the, the communities uh, claim that they're not even Muslim at all and actually revert to, uh, revert to or um, become more normatively Hindu, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we have two questions, first the lady and then Matt, and yeah. we'll leave it there. Okay, thank you so much. So, wow, thank you. I have a far-fetched question. So I know that the Ahmadis mm -hmm. had Okay. And so there's, I think you were about the fourth slide in, and you started to talk about um, the non Muhammadiyah and mm -hmm. the, the head, foot, arm, and then I couldn't use it. Oh, okay. Before. And so it was <laughs> so reminiscent of the five percenter. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. is there a connection? Is there a connection? No, of, of course. I mean, the, the Ahmadiyyas are also sort of their. They, I mean, the Ahmadiyyas are like a whole fascinating case study in themselves, right? But they're also, these ideas are circulating in, in 19th century India as well, right? And so especially sort of where the Ahmadiyyas sort of eventually, the, the group themselves, right? So the Ahmadiyyas emerge in Punjab. And in Punjab, you have these ideas that were not just 
by being used by Muslim Sufi communities and sort of other communities, but even the Sikhs themselves are using these, these ideas that eventually later on in the modern period, they tend to dis disregard these ideas. So these ideas were definitely shared by the Ahmadiyyas and it's part of their esoteric uh, theology, absolutely, for sure. <clears throat> Can you speak up a little bit? Oh, sorry. Uh, I really enjoyed your first Thanks. Um, I, I guess the less of a question and, and more kind of soliciting ideas of yeah, please. the types of people that might be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if um, someone like uh, working for Nick in North Africa, uh, Paul Tamar, okay. um, working at the Western Services Intellectual History in Washington on ethnography um, and around texts, she's done some really interesting work. Okay. Seen as so, the majority of people that I work with are in uh, in France, uh, and they're at the Center for South Asian Studies, and so they have a lot of they're do, they're doing a lot of pioneering work in French on vernacularization, so particularly vernacular vernacular Sindh and vernacular Gujarat. So I can put you in touch with um, some of the scholars and, and their work because they they seem to be really pioneering vernacular stuff in a way that I haven't found as much in the United States and interest in sort of, you know, highly sort of vernacular forms of, of South Asian and sort of uh, literature and materials and stuff like that. Um, so that, that's, yeah, and I can put you, I, there's like, yeah, different professors that are, that are working on really interesting stuff there. Yeah, because I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to, this is like almost wholly a vernacular tradition. So we're not seeing sort of high order Persian or high order Arabic materials. Um, and of course it's DM, it, we are not seeing illuminated manuscripts on it, um, but really trying to understand sort of at the, how, what was the explosion of this text? Why did, uh, so all of a sudden, you know, starting in the 17th century to the 19th century, there was an explosion of these materials, particularly in the vernacular. Um, so yeah, that, that's the question that I'm working on. Yeah, I'll try to make it. Yeah, it's pretty short, I think. Um, thank you so much, um, Iqbal. I think this was really fascinating. And I was just wondering if you have looked at all at sort of the other traditions, you know, coming out of Zanzibar and yeah. also, um, you know, Southern Arabia that deal with this idea of sort of the Muhammadan light and, you know, Nur. And I'm thinking in particular of Al Ayadrus okay. um, and Ensang Ho's yeah. sort of uh, uh, study of, you know, these manuscripts from that, the Alawi Sufi. Yeah. Um, tradition, and I was wondering if in um, the Koja context, if there is any connection between ritual authority and Nur, and sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> access to Nur, what does that do for one's status, you know, right. in this type, yeah. Well, I think, um, I mean, um, among the, yeah, so among the ethnostries, it's just the ethnostry tradition, which is that the imams are, have been more of, uh, among the Ismaili Kojas then, um, so the Ismailis, the uh, Aga Khani Ismailis, or the Nizari Ismailis, as they call, they call themselves now, um, believe that um, there's no end of the imams, right? So the Aga Khan is literally like the 47th living imam. And so for him, he has the nur of Allah. 
in him. And that's actually the authority that he has to guide his, his followers. So yeah, I think it's very directly related to the idea of Noor being used in construction of, of religious authority among the Khoja in the 19th century, absolutely. Well, and perhaps by way of a sort of concluding comment, I mean, I think it's sociological very, it's been very interesting to see how the nationally over the last two to three yeah. decades have opened up to yeah. you know, Swahili, Sunni Muslims who became, exactly. so these demographic sort of yeah. shifts uh, is yet sort of the new chapter in well, yeah. what you talk about historically. I mean, one of the, but, yeah, that, that was the thing that I was trying to think about is that, you know, historically we have these ideas that like, Islam comes to Africa, you know, over the Red Sea, or comes over sort of the Mediterranean or Sub-Saharan, or you know, sort of the trade routes. I think that the Indian Muslims also have a place to play in sort of the Islamization of East Africa, and that's kind of a story that really hasn't been told. Yeah, I know how it pans out today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks and I'm sorry you have to leave us now. Yeah. But thanks a lot. For Thank you so much. Okay, and um, with that, I think we, we have our bridge to the contemporary mm -hmm. coast and the East African coast. Um, and it's now Kim. Titlafu <laughs> Sipwinzani. Yeah. Differences are not opposition. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately, I do not have a PowerPoint, uh, so you'll <laughs> have to bear with me, please. Uh, well, uh, welcome everyone. I'd like to say thank you to uh, Professor Usman Khan and to Matthew for their amazing work in organizing this conference and for inviting all of us, and also to the staff um, at the Harvard Divinity School um, who've worked really tirelessly in the coming, you know, the last few weeks to make this happen, and to all of you uh, for being here as well. Um, I, again, I don't have a PowerPoint, uh, and I'll provide less contextual information, but we're still staying in Zanzibar. Uh, but uh, my paper, Iktilaf uh, Usio Upinzani, Iktilaf is not opposition, debating the right way to talk about difference in contemporary Zanzibar, is sort of tangentially related to my larger dissertation project, with, which studies uh, Ibadi Muslim um, transnational organizations in Oman and Zanzibar in particular, uh, one charitable society called Istiqama. Uh, so uh, anticipating Professor Chanfi Ahmed's uh, questions about who the Ibadiya are. Um, so <laughs> uh, they, um, I don't have as eloquent of a um, sort of an answer to, to that right now, but um, the Ibadiya are often characterized as an offshoot of the first secessionist movement in Islam um, following the Battle of Sifin, which was a battle over the caliphate um, between the followers of Ali and the followers of Muawiyah. Um, and then the Khawarij uh, were sort of this uh, group that sort of seceded um, after the arbitration uh, in, in this battle. Um, and so there's a long history that, you know, and much more complicated history that sort of ensues, but the Ibadi are seen as sort of, um, in, in, to some degree, uh, uh, in line or sort of from that lineage. Um, so that's sort of, uh, and they're an, a minority group within Islam today, and most of the Ibadiya live in Oman, uh, in parts of East Africa, and that connection is partially because of the long history of trade between Southern Arabia and uh, the coast of East Africa, and there's a significant Ibadi community in North Africa as well. So um, just to give a little bit of context, I'll spend less time on the other group that I'm engaging in this text, uh, which is you know, the Salafi community of Zanzibar. But I understand from the discussion uh, from the last panel that we, there was already you know, quite um, 
uh, in-depth engagement with some Salafi ideas, so um, please bear with me. <laughs> so this paper is a preliminary study of some of the ways in which Swahili-speaking Muslim writers at home in Zanzibar and in the diaspora express differences in opinion on religious issues. The paper also questions what, if any, implications polemical debates on difference have for minority-majority relations in Zanzibar's Muslim community. The focus will be on one text uh, titled Jawabuyetu kwa kitabu kituacho ukweli juu ya kuandamana kwa mwezi cha kamati ya masjid suna. Um, this is sort of a co my copy of the book. It's quite battered now, but um, the text first circulated online and I think the printed copies are quite few uh, in number. And so the prolific Zanzibar-born Omani writer and adherent of the Ibadi School of Thought, or Madhab, um, Juma Muhammad Rashid Mazrui, uh, wrote the Jawabu in response to another tract composed and circulated online by a group of Salafi students from the Committee of the Masjid Sunnah in Zanzibar. Uh, in their work, which I here refer to as the Ukweli, uh, the students defend the position of their teacher and popular Salafi preacher and Muslim reformer in Zanzibar, the late Sheikh Nasser Bachu, on the question of moon sighting and the start and end of Ramadan. Sheikh Bachu advocates a universalist internationalist position on the moon sighting issue, and uh, this position holds that the beginning and end of the month-long fast during Ramadan should be consistent across the global Ummah or the Muslim community. Mazuri wrote an extensive critique of Bachu's work in an earlier tract, hence provoking the Salafi students' defense of their, their teacher. So to clarify, the Jawabu, this text, is Mazuri's response to the Salafi students' response to Mazuri's original critique of Bachu. <laughs> Um, so, according to Gerard van de Bruinhorst, uh, the debate between the Salafis and Mazruis is a product of a series of seminars that occurred across Tanzania beginning in 1991 on the issue of moon sighting. The seminar served as a space for debating who or what uh, uh, should be considered uh, authoritative on the moon sighting issue. The main positions emer emerging from the debate were the universalist position, which as I explained was upheld by Bachu, and also much of the Tanzanian Salafi community in Zanzibar, and uh, the pluralist position adopted by most Ibadis and uh, other non-Salafi uh, Muslims. But again, I'm giving a very simplistic representation of these identities, and there's much more fluidity across them, so just keep, we'll keep that in mind. Uh, I would like to emphasize early on that I do not attempt to delve into the intricacies of the fascinating moonsighting debate in the paper. This is mainly because the two parties represented in the text, in the Jawabu, Mazrui and the Masjid Sunnah students, do not here seem particularly concerned with the technicalities and the legality of the ritual practice itself. I argue that the question of who should uh, decide when the global or local Muslim community should start or end the fast is merely an entry point into an argu arguably more contentious debate over who or what is a, um, a ritual authority in Zanzibar's Muslim community and how different sites of authority are delineated. delineated. <laughs> the appropriate usage and translation into Swahili of Arabic-derived terms such as jumhur, uh, for now I'll just translate it as public, um, and iktilaf, uh, roughly translated as differences in opinion, are particularly important points of debate in the jawabu. Building on the work of Van de Bruinhurst on the Swahili translation of Quranic verses in the debates on the moon sighting issue, uh, this paper examines tensions between language and authority, and specifically through the lens of polemics, or, and I'm here translating it as Jawabu, or Jawabu as polemics, uh, and the Arabic literary tradition of jadal, or debate. 
Um, the importance of establishing the appropriate disposition and vocabulary for engaging in debates, um, and so um, here using the Swahili term mijadala, uh, on ritual matters is also a major point of concern in, in the text. So to give you some background to the text, uh, Mazuri claims that he became aware of the Salafi students' critique of his response to their teacher early, um, in an earlier text. Um, he learned of this through his contacts in Zanzibar and Oman. So the Salafi community didn't actually give him a copy or directly address him. Uh, or, you know, It's interesting because they directly addressed him in the text, but they didn't make him aware of the text. And so he found out later on through others. Um, and so he writes that his brothers in Zanzibar, um, who I'm, I'm presuming were members of the Omani Ibadi community, he just uses the term Ndugu or, you know, my brothers, or uh, uh, felt that they could not adequately respond to the students' criticisms of his response to Sheikh Bachu, so they implored him to set the matter straight himself. Mazuri praises his community for their efforts, um, and he quotes a popular Swahili proverb, every bird usually flies using their own wings i.e. to the best of his or her own ability. Mazuri discredits the Salafi students' arguments in the Ukweli by claiming that they are a mere attack on his personal character rather than a serious critique of his work. And further, he says that the Salafi text is corruptible, the corruptibility of the text stems from its basis on deceit, tadlis, uh, which is itself a product of the student's selective reading and fabrication of his words and those of the ulama, the Islamic scholars. Mazuri goes on to say that he was conflicted, nili taraddad, about whether or not to write the jawabu in case it should lead to an endless debate around issues of little consequence and lacking in scientific backing. In the end, Mazuri does decide to write the response, but not as a scholarly tract intended for people possessing knowledge. Rather, he says, it is meant, and I quote, for the sake of those who understand as those Salafi students do, and taking into account their limited understanding. Mazuri often uses the verb kujadili, or to debate, in several of his responsa, but explicitly refers to the jawabu as only a conversation, mazungumzo, because a large part of their book, the student's book, does not contain scientific evidence, is what he says. The informal character of the jawabu and the author's defensiveness and refusal to acknowledge his opponent's worth suggests that this is a debate about more than just who has the authority to rule on matters of ritual, but it's also deeply personal. While the reader learns little about the science and logic behind moon-sighting debate from the Jawabu, the text does provide a sense of the broader issues at stake in adopting one perspective or another, the local or the universalist. In particular, the discussion between Mazruri and the Salafis brings to light the implications of debating differences of opinion and of trying to subsume all of the schools, the Madahib, into one unifying and authoritative school of thought. These issues are most apparent in the sections of the Jawabu that debate each party's use and understanding of the terms iktilaf and jumhur, and discussions on usul al-fiqh, and as, as well as the variations of the terms in linguistic and different linguistic and social contexts. Uh, so the elaboration of the differences between iktilaf, which in Swahili can be uh, iktilafu or hitlafu, and other Swahili words used to express variations in opinion, is a major, major point of contention in the Jawabu. The Encyclopedia of Islam defines iktilaf as, and I quote, the differences of opinions amongst the authorities of religious law, both between the several schools and within each of them, end quote. The discussion on iktilaf and the jawabu hinges largely on the question of translation and the need to distinguish between iktilaf as a positive and productive expression of difference in opinion versus the Swahili term for opposition or uh, upinzani, 
which comes from the verb kupinga, or to oppose or reject the opinions of others. The Masjid Sunnah students provide a pedantic explanation of the different valences of these Arabic and Bantu-derived terms, critiquing Mazruri's earlier use of kupinzani, or opposition, to describe different interpretations uh, on the issue of moon sighting. They say, and I quote, we would like to inform our brother Jumma that many times it is possible to come across concerning a given issue, people who differ, kutofotiana, uh, but, they're, they're, but that are not fighting, hawapingani. It is also, it, it is good to understand that opposition is present in the politics of our world and in other things that do not pertain to religion. In religion, what usually occurs is iktilaf. Uh, the Sahaba, <coughs> the companions of the Prophet, also differed in opinion. Um, on some issues, but they were not fighting one another." End quote. Here, the students attempt to establish the conditions for a sincere debate about religion at the beginning of the Jawab, Jawabu. They claim that discussions of religious difference must be removed from the realm of politics and that Islamic tradition has accommodated difference through the practice of iktilaf. The students clearly recognize iktilaf as a means of expressing difference in Islam and even concede that there were amical disagreements amongst the most authoritative persons in the tradition. Having established the correct etiquette for addressing difference, the Salafi group expresses gratitude that negative opposition, or upinzani, has not occurred in the religious seminars and symposiums on the issue of moon sighting in Zanzibar or elsewhere. They claim that rather than generate conflict, all the past seminars emphasize the words unity, uh, umoja, and the idea of educating one another, kuelemishiana, and not to oppose one another, kupingana. The students applaud Tanzanian Muslims' tolerant attitude towards different positions on the issue, and they explain, they explain that those who decide to follow the moon uh, to determine the beginning of an Islamic holiday have always prayed in the mosques and in the fields without disturbance. The students use this example of tolerance as proof that this, and I quote, is indeed uh, an example of differing differences in opinion and not of opposing one another. The moon sighting issue is a popular and highly debated one all over Tanzania, and the Masjid Sunnah students are actively engaged in the issue. They further portray Tanzania as a beacon of peace and religious tolerance in which religion and politics are um, you know, uh, very open topics of debate. Moreover, the students seem to distinguish between what happens in Tanzania and what happens elsewhere in the world, such in the <coughs> Gulf region where Mazuri lives and writes. So Mazuri is living and writing in Oman. Um, in establishing that they have superior knowledge of the Swahili language and local religious context, the Masjid Sunnah students are also able to make a claim to indigeneity and the monopoly on local language. Masjid claims in the Jawabu that the students are nitpicky and focus only on issues that are of little significance to debate. He views the debate on linguistics um, on terms such as iktilaf or jawab um, as futile and says that such preoccupation with language does little to advance knowledge or understanding of the issues under discussion. He also brings into question the student's familiarity with Islamic legal texts and the linguistic conventions used to describe the process by which the ulama challenge one another on the most contentious issues. Mazuri further suggests that the Masjid Sunnah students do not possess adequate knowledge of the Swahili language um, to engage in independent investigation of these texts, um, even, either Swahili or Arabic, or to um, critique scholarly works, such as his own, I guess. Um, so he says, and I quote, uh, they have quoted the words of the scholars, and then they mix them up when translating them into Swahili. The point that even the Swahili meaning has, to the point that even the Swahili meaning has surpassed them. So now, how do people like this dare to debate issues of knowledge, end quote. In the Jawabu, each party accuses the other of not having a strong grasp of Swahili 
and both parties use language as grounds on which to build their own authority. The discussion also implies that knowledge of the Arabic technical terms and linguistic conventions used by Muslim jurists is a precondition to uh, engaging in productive debate on issues about religion. The struggle over linguistic, legal, and cultural authority continues in the section on the jumhur or the jumhuri. So uh, the Swahili term jumhuri carries the same general term as its Arabic cognate jumhur. Both are often translated as general public or majority, although jumhuri can also mean, um, right, sorry, we'll just scratch that. <laughs> what is interesting about the discussion on the jumhur is not only what the term means, but also to whom it refers. In this sense, the issue is less one of translation than interpretation. Who do the words public or majority intend? Does it mean a majority opinion or practice among people of a particular locale? Or is it strictly the prerogative of the scholars to determine the jumhur? Uh, if so, who are the scholars and in what time and place are they writing? Another interpretation of the term could be an agreement between a particular body of institutions or different schools of thought, for example, the madahib. These are high stakes questions in societies containing large and ideological diverse Muslim societies such as um, is the case in Zanzibar. The moon sighting issue is again a convenient platform for addressing some of these larger issues concerning majority-minority relations on the island. The discussion on Jumhur opens with the masjid student statement referencing the history of the debate on the moon sighting issue and the rulings um, concerning this debate. And uh, they make the claim that Sheikh Bachu was not the first to advocate the international position on the debate in East Africa. Um, they then list several other proponents of this position, ranging from Dr. Wahba Suheili, Ibn Taymiyyah, and Ibn Qudama al-Maqdisi, among others. And they state, um, they all agree, they agree that the position, they say that the, uh, they all agree that, and I quote, the position of fasting on one sighting is indeed raya jamhur, like the opinion of the majority. Um, the Masjid Sunnah students define jamhur as the agreement between the four Sunni imams and claim that even a three out of four majority in their opinions is acceptable. Frustrated by this exclusivist uh, representation of the jumhur, at least the way he conceives it, Mazuri asks, and I quote, the scholars of what Sharia said that jumhur uh, means to, dis to agree with the four imams. So have you understood these scholars to have said that the words of all Muslims since the Sahaba should not be considered? Uh, is it only these four imams who deserve to discuss religion, uh, end quote. He explains that the term jamhur has different meanings and usages, but the strongest one is ummah, which includes members of the community since the time of the companions of the prophet and the imams of the different schools of thought up until today. Um, so I'm just gonna skip ahead to the conclusion because I think that there's not very much time. Um, so, uh, so considering the debate on iktilaf and uh, jamhur, uh, the Jawabu is one, of, one among many contributions to an ongoing debate concerning who or what constitutes an authority on the moon sighting issue in Tanzania and especially in Zanzibar. While the text offers very little in terms of enhancing the reader's knowledge about the nuances of the moon sighting controversy itself, the Jawabu does offer a unique lens into how arguments are constructed and refuted within and between different Islamic communities in Zanzibar and what this means for majority-minority relations on the Isles. In theory, iktilaf is the most legitimate avenue for expressing opinion, differences of opinion on matters of religion. However, in practice, each party, the Salafis and Mazruri, have their own views about what constitutes the appropriate et etiquette and qualifications and context for engaging in iktilaf. 
The debate over what is or is not iktilaf is also closely connected to the practice of ishtihad and who is authorized to perform ishtihad and based on what sources. The Salafi position seems to hold that there is a limited and identifiable corpus within which one can engage in ishtihad. And this apparently does not include all the texts deemed authoritative from the perspective of the Ibadis and the Shia in uh, Zanzibar. Mazuri, on the other hand, advocates an ishtihad that engages a plurality of sources and adheres to a method that uses the correct methods for interpreting the Quran and the Hadith. He uh, implies that the Masjid Sunnah students and their sheikh, uh, Sheikh Bachu, are more interested in debating insignificant semantics than they are at arriving at the truth. The discussion on language and the appropriate use and definition of certain terms in law and in popular discourse in the Jawabu is further interesting. In the debate on the Jumhur and the question of who makes up the majority in Islam, um, this is a particularly useful lens for understanding how majority and minority politics play out locally and how differences discussed and negotiated within Zanzibar's Muslim community. Based on my fieldwork in Zanzibar in 2014 and 2016, I noted that many Ibadis leaders in Zanzibar today regret that there is a lack of awareness about Islam and Ibadism within their community. Uh, they suggest that the knowledge of religion migrated from the islands with, the, with Zanzibar's great scholars during the mass exodus of Arab intellectuals between the 1950s and the 1970s. So just note that the Zanzibar revolution occurred in 1964 and uh, this led to a series of anti-Arab policies and the expulsion of a lot of uh, Arab scholars from the region. Um, so the text and author of the Jawabu both exemplify and contradict this narrative of decline. While Mazuri writes from his home base in Oman, he is engaging a largely Swahili-speaking public residing primarily in both Oman and Zanzibar. He accomplishes, accomplishes his transnational dialogue through the use of both virtual uh, and physical media. Um, so while the scholar may not necessarily be present on the physical stage in which the religious discussion is taking place, the networks for circulating and transmitting his work between Zanzibar and the Gulf remain intact. Uh, this is the case even as these networks take on new physical and ideological forms. So I would like to quickly just raise a final point concerning the difficulty of making um, generic classifications or you know, identifying the genre of particular texts and references that, um, when the text is written in their vernacular. So as I said, this text was circulated online, but there are some hard copies of it. There's no publication information. Um, and this kind of makes a little, it a little bit difficult to kind of to, to trap. Um, so much of the background information we have about Mazrui's works, and he's written several, um, there are two others here, and only one of the, them has a pu publication information, and it's through an Ibadi um, printing press in Oman called Istikama. Um, much of the background inf information we have comes from uh, secondary literature. And uh, it is important to note that no explicit reference to either Ibadi, his Ibadi identity is made in the Jawabu um, or to the publication information, again, that comes from the secondary literature. Um, moreover, there is no, um, uh, the online format enables greater democratization of networks of knowledge, um, a point that you know, several scholars have raised, especially Dale Eichelman, um, but it also complicates source critique, and so I have a really difficult time performing an adequate source critique. Um, I would like to pose a discussion question about how to best approach you know, text written in the vernacular and circulated through these more informal networks, um, and just wondering what such sources of knowledge tell us about official and unofficial forms um, of articulating minority-majority politics in Eastern Africa today. And so, <laughs> that's, that's that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kim.
Thank you. Um, so we'll go right over to Caitlin Bolton, PhD student at CUNY. And the setting remains Zanzibar, so we have <laughs> yeah. regional thematic overlaps. Yes. Thank you. Um, I just want to echo the other PhD students and thanking the organizers um, for the chance to be here and to learn from you all and share some initial thoughts from my preliminary ethnographic and archival research in Zanzibar. My paper is titled Modernizing the Madrasa, Islamic Education, Knowledge, and Development in Zanzibar. Placing a handful of small rocks on each desk, a preschool teacher in Zanzibar asks her students to add together two and three. The students push stones around and a few hands shoot up. Upon solving the question, the teacher holds up one of the rocks that she gathered on her walk to school that morning and asks, and who made this rock? When Yezi Mungu comes the chorus in reply, Almighty God. This teacher is trained by the Aga Khan Development Network's Madrasa Preschool Program, one of many Islamic development and charitable organizations in Zanzibar schools that are currently working to actively reinscribe the validity and applicability of Islamic knowledge across all levels and subjects, including rudimentary mathematics. This trend is complemented by the work of some local Quranic schools that teach English, math, and computers alongside Arabic and Quranic memorization, recasting secular subjects as part of Islamic knowledge and the madrasa as a site of knowledge and learning more broadly. These developments are in direct contrast to the secularizing influence of British colonial schools, which in the 1920s implemented an Islamic studies class to draw students away from the Quranic schools in an unsuccessful attempt to close them permanently. Given epistemic violence in colonial rule programs such as this, the Madrasa preschool program, can be seen as an attempt to reintroduce into the public school elements that have historically been a part of Islamic educational paradigms, including religion as a frame for all learning and the recognition of knowledge within sources such as the heart and soul that serve moral purposes beyond simply promoting good citizenship and employment. Yet at the same time, despite the program's express attempt to counter shifts in education initiated during the colonial era, in its efforts to modernize the madrasa, they owe just as much to their colonial forebears, particularly in their denigration of rote learning, recourse to a strict syllabus, and utilization of Islam and Arabic to sell secular learning to parents, raising key questions about what constitutes or what should constitute enduring elements of Islamic educational paradigms in the present day. Until the introduction of government schooling by the colonial regime in the early 20th century, the only formal education in Zanzibar was provided by local Quranic schools called Chuo or Vyo in Swahili and Kutab or Ketetib in Arabic. Parents would send their children to a local teacher from the age of six until about nine, after which boys would be initiated into the vocational arts of their fathers, with some continuing to advance Islamic sciences. Students would progress according to their own pace rather than a standard timeline, first memorizing the Quran, followed by more advanced Arabic texts and jurisprudence imported from Cairo. This instructional system exhibited certain key features, which many of us are familiar with. Um, for one, teaching was not guided by a formal syllabus or learning schedule for the entire class, but rather a student would proceed to the next step in learning as soon as he had mastered the prior. With individual writing tablets as compared to government, um, the government school's singular class blackboard, students could progress on their own learning schedule in a direct and personal relationship to a teacher or master. 
In fact, the very name Kuteb is likely a plural of Katib, meaning scribe or writer. One graduated not from an institution, but mastered individual texts under a scholar's guidance, extending the genealogical chain of personal knowledge transmission one link further. Many Zanzibaris of Hadrami descent, for example, would travel to Hadramaut to obtain ijazas, as the personal knowledge transmission from a well-known scholar was just as important as the textual content. Another key element of this instructional system was its focus on memorization and repetition of textual sources, what later colonial officials would, um, and some Islamic reformers would call rote learning or parrot talk. The goal was not to educate in the broader sense of the term, but to provide at proper moments the written and spoken word of the Quran, inculcating a directness of a relationship with God and God's word. This required training or riyada um, that was not parrot talk, but a thoroughgoing process of subjecting the self to repeated exercises that shape and form the soul until it became second nature. These interrelated forms of text and behavior prompts a third key feature, uh, namely the interrelatedness of knowledge, ilm, faith, iman, and action, amal. Classic Muslim scholars define knowledge more broadly than that which simply pertains to acquired learning, the intellect, or cognition. They also included intuitive kinds of knowledge pertaining to the heart, the soul, or souls, such that knowledge is a light which God casts into the heart of whomsoever he wills. And faith was not opposed to knowledge, as in, you know, we have this term blind faith, um, but are often, these two are often equated in the Quran. Further, learning was not simply for knowledge's sake, but with the aim of producing particular behavior in society. Um, so our ilm was paired with action, amal, and in fact preceded it. The goal of Islamic education in Zanzibar was not only to produce a knowledgeable Muslim, but also to produce a good person with manners, adabu, moral conduct and self-restraint, hashima, and sound judgment, akili, based on one's knowledge of the Quran. The Quranic school simultaneously shaped knowledge, faith, and action within the context of a personal relationship with a scholar-master, progressing through an ocean of knowledge and interpretation according to one's individual pace. Public schooling was introduced in Zanzibar at the beginning of the 20th century under colonial rule. The primary aim of the colonial educational system, as indicated in their documents, is to produce useful, quote, useful and loyal citizens who could contribute to the material progress of the colony. In particular, colonial officials were eager to make the colony self-sustaining and provide a ready labor supply on clove plantations, having formally ended slavery in 1897. To this end, they engaged in an exchange of educational theory and practice with the American South, um, importing what they called practical, but what was called industrial education in this country, heralded by institutions such as Tuskegee and the Phelps Stokes Commission. Um, so this included an exchange of scholars, both from the United States going to Zanzibar and the opposite as well. Um, yet colonial officials faced a significant problem when they um, started the public schooling system, which was that students simply did not attend. Enrollment stayed low, as most families preferred to continue within the educational paradigm of the Quranic school, which was absolutely baffling to colonial officials who called these schools, quote, deadening to potential intellect, a survival of social and religious system of many centuries, and the parrot-like repetition of the Quran in a foreign tongue, which even the teacher does not understand, end quote. Uh, another wrote in a report that the schools have uh, an atmosphere, the effect of which is indisputably harmful, as students are put in an unventilated room, 
where, teacher, where the teacher does not bother about cleanliness. Despite colonial officials' disdain for the local Islamic school system, they discovered that the only way to increase attendance was to include um, Arabic and religious training. Therefore, in the 1920s, the director of education paired with local Islamic leaders to devise an Islamic studies class um, with its own clear syllabus and selected materials that were translated into a newly Romanized Swahili, um, including a text uh, called Aya Zilizo Chaguliwa. Um, and this was met with local outcry and uh, for at least a decade um, caused a lot of trouble for the Department of Education, uh, Colonial Department in Zanzibar. Particularly, um, locals were uh, upset that the language of instruction was shifted from Arabic to Swahili and then even further in um, a Romanized Swahili, so without the Arabic letters, and they felt that the Quranic education was very, very poor and slim. In Confidential Missives, the Director of Education affirms that um, he included Arabic simply to lure parents to send their children to school, despite that he says it has no practical value to the protectorate. So really this focus on practical, what they consider practical knowledge. Um, so generally, they turned what could be termed an ocean of knowledge and interpretation that had characterized Islamic education into a codified syllabus. Uh, with success judged not by religious scholars in a personal relationship, but by the standards of the Cambridge Overseas Examination. Um, so focusing on the, this particular program in the present day, um, the Aga Khan Development Network's Madrasa Preschool Program, just as a bit of background, um, the, the AKDN has a number of projects in Zanzibar, um, many of which are for-profit, so luxury hotels, but also um, a number of development programs, including clinics and this educational program. Um, yet when the government of Zanzibar uh, sort of reneged on a contract to sell new land for another hotel, um, they pulled much of the development programs except for this educational program. They said, let us find a way to modernize this madrasa. Zanzibar's program director explained in an interview, narrating the beginnings of the Madrasa Early Childhood Development Program in East Africa. The program began in 1986 as a way to encourage school attendance among East African Muslims through preschool education. The AKDN places their Madrasa preschools firmly within a genealogy of classical Islamic education, expressly attempting to counter the secularizing shift in colonial and government schools by reintegrating Islam as a frame for all learning. In its basic meaning, the Madrasa preschool curriculum states, a madrasa is a place where one studies. The AKDN defines the madrasa classically and etymologically as a place of learning more broadly, despite its general association with just religious study in the non-Arabic speaking Muslim world. They position their school within a genealogy of Islamic education that taught rational sciences equally alongside uh, religious sciences, writing of madrasas in the 11th century that, quote, taught religion, the sciences, public administration, and governance alongside one another, which gives the impression that rational sciences were sort of equal and central part of classical Islamic education. Um, yet drawing on Muktasi's rise of the colleges, he writes that while philosophical and natural sciences flourished during medieval period in Arab lands, it was not because they were officially taught alongside religious sciences in um, institutions of higher learning. Um, mainly because they were founded and funded by Elkaf, which stipulated what could be studied um, and was generally restricted, restricted to religious sciences. 
That said, um, study of, of what was called foreign sciences, including Greek philosophy, could be pursued privately through non-institutionalized learning, in um, particularly in libraries. Um, the AKDN represents um, Islamic history in this way to place their mothers of preschool within a genealogy of Islamic education that has, in their formulation, always officially taught non-religious subjects, and that their program is simply the latest in um, what they call an evolve, the evolving role of madrasas in education in Muslim societies that fits the 21st century. Um, if classical Islamic education was all-inclusive of religious and foreign sciences, as uh, their curriculum maintains, that all changed during the colonial period. The AKDM positions its schooling paradigm in direct contrast to colonial reforms. Quote, at the time of British colonial rule, they state, madrasas began to focus more exclusively on a narrow set of religious subjects, leaving instruction to more general areas, um, in more general areas to government schools. They, they position their own program in direct contrast to colonial delimiting of Islamic education to one class, like a religious studies class, writing that, quote, the premise of the curriculum is that Islam is a way of life, not an additional subject in the syllabus. It is in the, within this context that they articulate their, what they call, integrated approach to education, where uh, the teaching of Islam is integrated into all aspects, um, including uh, with secular education. There is a specific period within their daily timetable for direct religious instruction covering qira'a, tawheed, ibadah, sira, akhlaq, and hadith. But other subjects, including language and literacy, math, creative arts, and others, are to be taught within what they call a frame of Islamic culture. So while the curriculum does not, not, does not actually give instructions for how to accomplish this integration in other subjects, Teachers are encouraged to be incorporating Islamic motifs and patterns, narratives from the Quran, as well as adab, the rules of etiquette, courtesy, and cleanliness rooted in East African culture." End quote. For example, the program director in Zanzibar sang a song that students are taught when learning numbers. Number one, Allah is one. Number two, two rak'at al-fajri. Number three, three rak'at al-maghribi. In addition to an Islamic frame for all learning, the program also seeks to create um, certain behavior, so goodness, manners, or, or moral action. Uh, they encourage the integration of ethical values throughout their daily timetable, but it's specifically reserved for the religious studies section. Um, so children are presented with hadith and du'as that are, quote, relevant for common situations, including sharing, being kind, and honest, and are encouraged to practice them throughout the day. To help students remember them, children are given plenty of opportunities to recite rhymes based on hadith and du'as and to draw pictures related to them. To further embody these principles, they're encouraged to make up stories about sharing, being kind, honest, trustworthy, and tolerant, and practice through activities such as songs, stories, and role-playing. Children are taught hadith and du'as to recall them in relevant situations, literally embodying them through this role-playing in order to inspire virtuous behavior in daily life. Uh, this is because virtue in this educational paradigm is accomplished within an ethic of remembering, where stories from Islamic history become personal stories. Uh, the Zanzibar program director demonstrated this in his speech, um, narrating stories saying, I remember one time there was a war between Muslims and Jews in the time of the Prophet And other times he says, I remember there was one governor who was that poor, even though he had access to the Bayt al-Mal um, to emphasize his justice. Conversely, the cause of social ills is forgetting. He says, but now you know leaders, when they get into power, they forget everything. That's why there's corruption. The AKDN Madrasa Preschool program actively attempts 
to incorporate elements from classical Islamic education, namely Islam as a frame for all learning and a purpose of education in cultivating virtuous behavior, um, elements that were sidelined with the introduction of government schooling during the colonial era. Yet, while they placed their program within a genealogy of classical Islamic education, that genealogy also traces back to key colonial interventions in education, particularly in the ordering of space and time, in which a syllabus is a prime component, the denigration of rote learning, and the use of Islam and Arabic to, quote, sell secular learning to, par to, to parents, to Muslim parents. As with government public schools during the colonial era, the Madrasa preschool program is um, highly ordered in its minute allocation of time. Um, I include that in the main paper. You can see that, uh, that schedule. Rather than being structured by individual rhythms and the call of the adhan, the daily timetable is broken down into the minutes of each day. And just as with the first colonial syllabus, the Madrasa preschool syllabus includes one class subject for religious studies, the content of which was agreed upon in a workshop with contemporary Quranic school teachers. In particular, AKDN official texts echo their colonial forebears in their disdain for rote learning. As opposed to, quote, traditional chalk and talk exercises that produce empty repetition, AKDN seeks to replace what they call traditional methods of rote learning with a student-centered approach that builds problem-solving skills and encourages independent thinking. After all, children are being taught to remember stories and prayers, but not necessarily to memorize them. While colonial officials wrote that the that Quranic schools taught, Arabic, taught the Arabic alphabet in a dry and uninteresting way, children at the Madrasa preschool should be, quote, having fun with the Arabic language, including playing puzzles from Arabic letters or printing, paint, painting over or tracing over Arabic letters. Lastly, AKDN's Madrasa preschool program echoes the, the colonial reforms in its strategic use of Islam and Arabic in order to sell secular learning to parents. Chief among these is the term Madrasa itself, as the program was initially called the Early Childhood Education Project and only later renamed the Madrasa program. Uh, we met with local leaders, the Zanzibar program director explained, telling them, we come here to sell you the idea of the importance of early childhood development. What do you think? He explains that naming the school a madrasa helped, quote, to make sure that parents buy into the idea of preschool. But really, he explained, it's just a matter of interpretation because in Islam, it is very clear that the first commandment is iqra. After all, he continued, you know, madrasa in Arabic is simply a place of learning. Uh, a young Canadian employee did not actually even know the meaning of the word madrasa or that there were other institutions by that same name. Um, she stated, from what I've gathered, we have a really good reputation in Zanzibar because everybody knows madrasa. Like when I say I work for madrasa here, everyone knows what I'm talking about. The inclusion of religion, she felt, makes people less um, resistant to work, to, to their work, because, quote, by having the Islam faith incorporated throughout the education, you can probably bring a lot more radical or interesting ideas beside it. Um, as a, a closing reflection, um, the AKDN not only attempts to sell secular learning to Muslim parents, but it also attempts to sell religious learning to potential Western observers of the program who may be disinclined to view it favorably. It does this through the language of culture. Culture often appears throughout um, the text, their curriculum, alongside statements that discuss the inclusion of Islam. So for example, quote, the curriculum is culturally sensitive and builds on the Muslim cultural home background of the child 
And a goal of the Islamic studies subject is to, quote, value and acknowledge children's cultural background. The Islamic curriculum is integral from that perspective, not because it is necessarily right or desirable, because, but because it is a social fact on the ground. The language of culture thus allows foreign observers to endorse the inclusion of Islam in AKDN's programs while simultaneously dis dismissing it as not essential to the work itself. As the same Canadian employee explained, um, that they're really good about not pushing on some pushing on some other culture's beliefs as a way of development. And this is so effective because um, they, it, the program embraces Islam 100% and so people are less resistant to it. At the same time, she explained, I'm not a fan of institutionalized religion, which I guess is kind of ironic. She laughed, but she continued, nothing about Aga Khan has ever seemed very like pushing anything on you. I haven't even really associated it much with its religion. Thank you very much. I was just thinking it might be worthwhile keeping in mind that uh, your, your main field work is still to come, right? So for those yes. questions, and that actually here's someone who can work with fluent Arabic and Swahili, or at least have both these languages at the disposal. So there might also be projective questions, right? So just just wanted to flag that up briefly. Okay. So thanks for our now our third speaker, Ahmed Sharif Ibrahim from the Graduate Center at CUNY as well, also completing his PhD. And the talk is called Somalia, Sudan, and the Rise of Scholar Politics in the ICU. All right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I would also like to join uh, all the presenters in thanking the, uh, the organizers of the, uh, uh, the conference, uh, Professor Osman and Matthew, and the staff, of course. Um, my presentation today is a, a, cond a condensed version of a chapter from uh, my dissertation, uh, which I'm currently writing. A, a dissertation that's on the emergency of a Sharia court movement uh, in Mogadishu, uh, Somalia, uh, in, early to, in, early, uh, in the early 90s, uh, and when they eventually took over the city uh, in 2006. Uh, uh, so to give you a, a, a bit of a contextual background so you understand the movement, um, the, the Somali state, the Somali central state, uh, collapsed in 1991, completely disintegrated uh, in 1991. A long-time dictator, uh, Siad Barre, fled uh, Somalia. Uh, and after the, he was deposed, the various rebel movements that were uh, um, outside the capital city came in, and they, of course, uh, started fighting over the uh, a, a started over power. A, this a, led to a prolonged period of anarchy, uh, a violence, a extreme violence, a, a, a displacement of a um, of population, a, a majority of population, and the moving in of a new a population into the city. Um, the the uh, various neighborhoods in the city were cut off uh, from each other. There emerged uh, a a war economy, a, um, and the various neighborhoods of, of the city became uh, more or less fiefdoms controlled by different warlords, uh, criminal gangs. Uh, it became almost impossible to move from one, neighbor, one neighborhood uh, to the other. Uh, so as a response to these uh, problems, there uh, began a, um, 
an organic movement uh, in, in various neighborhoods in the city where uh, religious authorities, basically neighborhood sheikhs, uh, and a clan elders or traditional elders uh, try to set up some form of uh, adjudication processes. Uh, so they set up centers uh, where people who had disputes could come and have their uh, problems resolved voluntarily. Uh, the centers also worked as a space where young a man often could be brought by their relatives to be rehabilitated uh, by the again by the sheikhs there in Islamic uh, in Islamic ethics, uh, Islamic uh, ideas about justice and social responsibility. So these centers uh, began to form in various neighborhoods in the city uh, around 1992, 1993. Um, uh, the, the, the centers are completely uh, consensual based. Uh, they are, uh, the jurisdiction, quote unquote, uh, is limited to the community that uh, established the, the centers. Uh, and because of the way the civil war played out, a lot of the neighborhoods in Mogadishu kind of a, were kind of segregated along a quote unquote clan a, or lineage groups uh, because clan was politicized and so the, 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 the residents of the city began to, 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 to segregate themselves and move into different uh, neighborhoods where they wouldn't be uh, attacked on, on the basis of their clan identification. Uh, so the uh, the, 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 the centers that are forming are forming in the name of specific lineages. So the early uh, 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 community, community centers are named after specific lineages. Uh, and so the jurisdiction is limited to, a, uh, to that specific lineage. Uh, and it's also voluntary. Um, and so the, 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 the centers are specifically being formed primarily to protect uh, as a self-defense mechanism, as uh, a self-governance mechanism by the, by, by, by the communities. Um, so over time, uh, throughout the 90s, early 2000s, the, uh, community, the community centers uh, began to go through various transformations. Uh, first, they're called Sharia courts. Uh, because the, uh, the, the sort of the discourse, the authorities that uh, enable the formation of the centers as well as their functioning is all based on Sharia uh, discourse and authority. So they're called Sharia courts. Uh, they began through various transformations, and by uh, early 2000s, they're quite strong enough uh, in terms uh, in that they have created uh, small groups of militias, of small uh, armed uh, men that first come as volunteers, but later on are given a little bit of money uh, after the, uh, the centers receive the packing of some of the uh, businessmen uh, in, in the city. And the businessmen, of course, are interested in supporting the courts because of security. Uh, so the courts kind of grow. Their, their power slowly increases. And they also, at the same time, begin to coordinate amongst themselves. So first, their jurisdiction was limited to a specific neighborhood. Uh, so the problem they encountered, of course, was a, a person could do something here, a, potentially kill someone, you know, steal some property, and go to another neighborhood. The courts couldn't do anything. So in order to be able to, to, to uh, apprehend that kind of uh, uh, scapee, uh, they began to have a, a, a dialogue between themselves. 
And of course, since they were mostly led by a religious authorities, they already kind of knew each other. So they began to coordinate a, and create a forum where they coordinated amongst themselves. Um, by 2000, 2001, there are various uh, armed groups uh, are being brought together uh, under a single uh, a, 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 a administration, if you will, and they are a, sort of preparing themselves to take on the uh, warlords of the city, because the warlords of, of the city at this time are beginning to feel the pressure from the, the courts. And so there is, a, there is a, 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 an emerging power of the courts, the presence of the warlords and criminal uh, elements that are now forming into two distinct uh, groups that are opposing each other. Uh, of course, around this time, there is the whole war on terror. And so this creates an, an, a further incentive for the warlords to uh, uh, sort of uh, create a, an alliance and call themselves something like the, the Alliance for the Restoration of, for Fighting uh, Counterterrorism and the Restoration of Peace, and get some funding from uh, neighboring countries as well as the, the US, of course. Uh, eventually, there, become, there, there, there comes a confrontation, a full-blown confrontation, between the Sharia courts, the various uh, independent, autonomous, neighborhood-based Sharia courts, and the warlords. The courts are uh, able to win the backing of most of the city's population and quickly uh, overcome the warlords and then and create, a, a, for the first time in 16 years, in 2006, a, 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 a single uh, power a, in Mogadishu. They took over the entire city. Uh, and as soon as they take over the city, they also begin to slowly spread to other parts of the country. Um, and, and they create a, an umbrella organization called the Union of Islamic Courts. Uh, some of you might have heard of this. Um, now, when they, when, when they take over the city and create the Union of Islamic Courts, then they begin a process of creating a unified judiciary. So before, the, 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 the various Sharia courts were community-based, independent, autonomous from each other. Once they take over the city and create the Union of Islamic Courts as the umbrella organization, they began a process of creating a hierarchical court system based on the Sharia. And here in, uh, emerged a group of uh, university-educated uh, young men, mostly educated in Sudan. They gained, they rose uh, to power within the courts and become the leading uh, uh, men in the process of creating a, a unified court system in bureaucratizing the courts. So they take over a, a lot of the positions of power within the Union of Islamic Courts. So my presentation is on these men, the emergence of these uh, university-educated men, mostly in Sudan. Uh, how did their emergence change a Sharia practice? What did the creation of a unified court system mean in terms of the authority of Sharia? Uh, and so that's what I... Uh, what I would read next. Uh, I, I won't say much about the creation of the, uh, this network between Somalia and Sudan, except to say much of the reason for the creation of, of, of this network uh, that enabled this uh, young man to go to Sudan and uh, obtain university degrees and come back to Somalia, <coughs> late 90s, uh, early 2000s, was because of what was happening in Sudan. Uh, primarily the, uh, the 1989 coup which brought, brought to power the, uh, the National Islamic Front uh, in Sudan, NIF. Uh, 
Then I have proclaimed a project of developing an Islamic way of life that could meet the challenges of moder modernity through the institutions of the state and through education. As a byproduct of the state's assertion and emphasis on Islamic identity, Sudan relaxed its, its visa requirements for citizens of Muslim countries and established Islamic institutions and universities that catered to international students. So this allowed a lot of Somali students to go to Sudan uh, because they couldn't go anywhere else. And there were no universities in Somalia after the collapse of the state. The entire education system collapsed. Uh, so the fact that Sudan enabled this, uh, allowed these students to come to Sudan without, without passports, because one couldn't travel anymore with, Somali, with a Somali passport after the collapse of the state. The NIF uh, government also gave scholarships to Somali students. Uh, so this allowed a lot of Somali students to go to Sudan as opposed to Egypt uh, or Saudi Arabia or these other countries. Because a lot of these countries weren't accepting Somali students anymore because they didn't have education certificates because the government wasn't there. There were no passports. The state wasn't there again. But Sudan was the only country that was accepting them, and that's how this uh, education network uh, formed. So now I'll go to uh, their experience in Sudan. Upon arriving in Sudan, most of the Somali students went to Khartoum. Once there, the majority of them enrolled in the African International University. African International University was one of the institutions that catered to international students. The university had five faculties, and the interest exam one took depended on the faculty one was joining. The majority of the graduates from African International University that I met in Mogadishu majored in, in, in education and in Sharia and Qanun. Among the most important consequences of these students' experiences in Sudan was a shift in their religious views as a result of being exposed to a very lively Islamic public sphere in Sudan. Their time and experience in Sudan was extremely influential, influential in informing their religious and world views. To begin with, there is a difference in the Sunni Islamic school of legal tradition that's followed in Somalia and the one that's followed in Sudan. Shafi'i is the dominant method in Somalia, while in Sudan, Maliki is predominant. The Somali students were very aware of the existence of different schools of thought within Islamic jurisprudence. But encountering that difference in practice was very different than learning about it theoretically. Additionally, the level and complexity of Islamic learning and debates in Sudan was significantly higher than what they knew back home. This was an eye-opening experience. The Somali students' time in Sudan coincided with the state-led Islamization project, which many of the Somali students described as a revolution. They noted that because of this revolution, a bus would come to the campus every Friday and take anyone who was interested to lectures and debates held around the city and attended by well-known international dig dignitaries and scholars. One man told me that he met the well-known Doha-based Egyptian scholar, Yusuf Al-Qaradawi, one of the most recognizable Muslim clerics in the world today. This was an important and memorable event for the man who came from a small farming village in southern Somalia. In Sudan, they also had access to big libraries, which was a drastic change compared to what was available in Somalia. Underlining how minuscule the amount of reading material available in Somalia was in comparison to Sudan, one interview told me it was, it was like coming out of darkness into the light. Exposure to this material and the Islamic public sphere in Sudan changed their religious views. One interviewee asserted that most of the Somali students in Sudan were Salafi in orientation, particularly those that went there as members of Islamic reformist movements. 
Their teachers in Sudan realized this, and so would challenge them. He emphasized that these debates had a big influence on him and the other Somali students. It informed them of the variety of positions and opinions possible within Islam. What the Somali students encountered in Sudan was a public sphere, was a public sphere where Islamic principles and terms framed public debate and deliberation. This, this vibrant public sphere was made possible by the effects on Sudanese society by the Islamization policies of the NIF, National Islamic Front, as described in a recent book by anthropologist Noah Solomon, For Love of the Prophet, an Ethnography of Sudanese Islamic State. It was this Islamic public sphere populated by diverse actors that the Somali students encountered. The Somali students who left a country in the middle of religious polarization based on doctrinal debates between Sufi and Salafis. It's no surprise then that they came back from Sudan having softened their hardline doctrinal positions and viewing doctrinal-based confrontations in Somalia as a mark of the inferior knowledge of religious man in Somalia. By 2003 and 2004, a significant number of these students were back in Mogadishu. To underline their sense and cohesion as a group, they established an organization called the Organization of Somali University Graduates. The organization of university grad this organization of university graduates had a core membership of 100 individuals, 90% of whom held some type of post-secondary degree from Sudan. The specialization of these graduates differed and included both religious and secular subjects. Because of their education and socialization, they viewed themselves as uniquely positioned to play a leading and transformative role in society. They saw themselves as above the ethnic and religious polarization that underwrote much of the conflict in Somalia. They prided and distinguished themselves on their understanding of both the Islamic religion and the modern world. So when in early, in early 2000, in middle 2006, the independent communal Sharia courts took control of Mogadishu, these graduates were in position to play a leading role in the Union of Islamic Courts' attempt to establish a unified court system for the entire city. The first action they took, the first action the Union of Islamic Courts took after gaining control of the city directly impacted the Sharia-based authority of the neighborhood sheikhs. The Union of Islamic Courts created what it called the Court of the Union. The Court of the Union was to be the principal mechanism through which the city was to have a new and centralized governing structure under the Union of Islamic Courts. The Court of the Union was composed of three courts, the highest court of the new court system, an appeals court, and the court for returning forcefully taken fixed assets. And this was a special court because many of the problems they were dealing with were uh, because of the population turnover in Mogadishu. A lot of people left and a lot of people came back. The biggest problem was, had to do with real estate and land. So they created a special court to deal with that issue. Significantly, the Union of Islamic Court officials declared that only individuals with degrees in Sharia and Qanun could be appointed as judges or administrators, administrators at the Court of the Union complex. Since Sharia and Qanun wasn't a subject learned in the traditional religious education in Somalia, this requirement meant that only individuals with university, with university degrees could be appointed to the Court of the Union. Many of the people who met this requirement were the young men who had graduated from modern Islamic universities outside of Somalia, primarily Sudan. The majority of the neighborhood sheikhs who ran the original courts didn't meet this requirement and were thus assigned to district courts, newly created district courts. 
the district level courts became the lowest level of the new Sharia court system under the Union of Islamic Courts. And the jurisdiction of the district level courts were, were, was limited to family matters and minor disputes. Effectively, district courts occupied the same space and had the same jurisdiction as family courts had under the previous military regime. In dismantling and reorganizing the original communal Sharia courts as district courts, the Union of Islamic Courts was taking the first step in bureaucratizing and centralizing Sharia practice. This also meant the usurpation of the Sharia-based authority of the traditionally trained neighborhood sheikhs. In so doing, the Union of Islamic Courts was also essentially undermining the communal embed embeddedness of Sharia authority and practice. Another important development that helped to streamline the authority of the Sharia under the Union of Islamic Courts was the creation of an appeals court. Under the Union of Islamic Courts, an appeals court was established to allow parties dissatisfied with the court's decision the opportunity to challenge that decision. An independent office was also established to determine whether a case should be forwarded to the appeals court after considering the arguments for an appeal. The previous communal Sharia courts didn't lack an appeals process, but it worked very differently than the appeals process under the Union of Islamic Courts. Under the communal Sharia courts, there were no hierarchy of courts, and thus there was no specific court of appeals. This, however, didn't mean that a court's decision couldn't be contested. Such a contestation happened in two ways. It was common practice in the communal Sharia courts to invite well-known and reputable Sharia authorities, known as muftis or fuqaha, to sit on, case, to sit on as cases were argued and validate the arguments rendered by the, judge, by the judges there. This was done so that the public could have confidence in that the judgments rendered were in accordance with Sharia. In some instances, the muftis would contest the decision reached by the judges. This led to a new round of deliberations and debate in the court between the challenging, the challenging mufti and the judges. In such situations, the court's judgment would be postponed until the challenge had been satisfactorily addressed. In some cases, the previous decision would be overturned. I'll skip ahead. This process allowed for a more open contestation of a court's decision. And independent Sharia specialists were key to this process. After the establishment of an appeals court under the Union of Islamic Courts, the appeals process was taken out of the hands of the independent Sharia specialists. Interestingly, under the communal Sharia courts, an appeal of a court's, of a court's, of a court's decision hinged upon arguments over the, author, over the authoritative position of the Sharia. Under the Union of Islamic Courts, disagreements over the position of the Sharia weren't the basis of appeals. Rather, appeals under the Union of Islamic Courts were often based on questions of procedure and evidence. In other words, the institutionalized Sharia understanding of the judges of the Union of Islamic Courts were final and could not be contested. The bureaucratization of Sharia practice meant the, limit, meant the limitation to a certain extent of input from the traditionally educated Sharia authorities and the prioritization of a bureaucratized institutional set setup in determining the authoritative position of the Sharia. This was a major transformation of the openness and contestation that was part and parcel of Sharia practice under the communal Sharia courts. To conclude, many of the institutional and procedural changes made under the Union of Islamic Courts were led by university-educated men. These changes included the establishment of a distinct court dealing with family matters and the creation of a hierarchical court system. 
These transformations are historically associated with the attempt to centralize the administration of justice during the colonial and post-colonial periods in the rise of the modern nation state. These are also transformations that are viewed by scholars as central to the structural and epistemic ruptures that characterize the Sharia in the modern world. What does this say about the union of Islamic courts as a political configuration? And that's partly what I tried to address in my uh, dissertation, and hopefully I would like your comments to be uh, to reflect that question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ahmed. Um, so we have 15 minutes to uh, wrap up for the whole day, and so I don't want to actually say too many things. Perhaps I, I throw out a couple of comments that are partly comparative, and um, I think then we should take as much as possible here from, from the floor. But I just uh, wanted to say also this, this, this uh, your, your, your written paper, I found that really intriguing on the Somali-Sudanese uh, sort of cross-experience and educational experience to which uh, I mean, where, where I think you illustrate really well this internal understanding of how the di local dynamics of politics work. And this, I actually thought that Kim's title quote could almost be applied to sort of this, um, the positive educational experiences of these Somalis in, in Sudan, where it's, um, you know, that, that Khitlafu, um, difference is not opposition. And uh, we've got in his paper actually some Wonderful illustrations there, how these Somalis experience these fierce debates and always thinking uh, fights are going to break out, but, but mm -hmm. they see this is actually sort of lived, um, contested, discursive practice, but peaceful. Mm -hmm. and, and they take that back. And so, I mean, I, I think that's, there's a whole uh, a rich evolving theme there. And I just wanted to point also at a point of method where the use of life, life uh, histories here as a kind of anchor or narrative threat, uh, mm -hmm. I think that works really well there. Um, so, yeah, and so, so, so to the Zanzibar, um, so to Kim's paper, I, I also felt sort of working with a close reading uh, of a debate, uh, using that as your, your threat to, to, to deal with is, is highly interesting, and thus documenting the internal debates. Um, but I think one could also ask, so, so in that case, is it not opposition or is it? Because, you know, the polemics are really fierce, and if we take their... Uh, if you take on board the, also the sensitivities of the negotiation of what is proper Islam there, and um, I think a lot of things can, can be said there. So, so um, couching is sort of giving us quite a bit more of, of historical contextualization and current contextualization of, of what is going on. I mean, it's highly interesting, this sort of a kind of revival of Ibadism. On the other hand, the sort of a very strong Salafi, but that all sort of in the in the post-revolution, so, so Zanzibar still is this post-socialist sort of point also, which I think is another very interesting thing there. And um, linking it up maybe with some other debates on the sighting of the moon mm -hmm. in the region as, as well, but it's, um, yeah, highly suggested, but undertones of the race issue and so on that, that uh, fed into the, the Mapindusi itself in 1964. Um, so just to throw out a couple of more comments on the, the other Zanzibar paper, there I was much reminded, I mean, again, I think this, this political sensitivity of how there in terms of the educational politics, Islamic plays out, or how should it be used? And uh, you were zooming in on the, the Aga Khanis who are um, on the one hand 
you know, a very wealthy group, but a minority group there. So they also have to tread very carefully of how they sell themselves or how, how they bait people. And I think that these, this pragmatic interest of, you know, of recruiting, of, of baiting comes out very well. But I was also thinking it might be worthwhile to link it back to the earlier efforts of, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s of the same group uh, under quite different circumstances, doing a, a trading similarly carefully and doing it a different, uh, also doing consciously development educational work. Um, so that might be interesting. And yeah, then what, uh, under, under the post-socialist scenario. Um, I think, I, I, I mean, I have lots more questions and, and uh, desire to debate this more, but really uh, we had a silent floor for so long, so please uh, let's collect some questions and end with a lively debate that will not end in opposition. We'll see. It will take no, no as well. Yeah. Uh, all the papers were really, really excellent and a lot to think about. I, I have a question for Ahmed in particular. I'm really curious, uh, you outlined very nicely the uh, effects of the, on, on the Somali students of being in the milieu of Sudan more generally. But I was actually curious just more specifically within the context of African University, um, do you have any uh, information on how they fit into this uh, kind of internationalism that's promoted by that university, uh, connecting with people from other African nations um, within that within that specific context mm -hmm. of the university. Okay, maybe we. Oh yeah, we'll Thank take that one and then we answer. Yeah. Thank you very much um, to all of you. Uh, one question uh, for Ahmed. Um, maybe you can. Um, Think about the um, the courts um, within larger within the larger context of state building, um, and 
examine the process that uh, you just described uh, here uh, earlier um, within the context of other institutions, other structures um, as part of the process of state building, mm -hmm. maybe this bureaucratization mm -hmm. of the courts mm -hmm. that you described, mm -hmm. uh, this um, um, move from um, fluidity to rigid structure is part of um, this process of consolidating uh, building in mm -hmm. your state mm -hmm. um, and consolidating authority, power, moving away from uh, traditional groups mm -hmm. um, and traditional interest groups mm -hmm. um, to new groups. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, about the process you described in a larger, in the larger context mm -hmm. of Somalia. I don't know much about Somalia. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned a lot from, from your presentation, but um, it made me think about uh, how it fits what you described within the larger context of uh, state building in Somalia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Okay, yeah. so let's have a round of answers. And should we take the sequence of speakers, maybe? Yeah. Did I fix yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for the questions, uh, Professor Abdul Qadir. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I think that I'm struggling a little bit with the context um, of the debate and doing the finding good sources to sort of do that research. But from what I have been able to discover on the internet um, is that I think Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Bachu, the student's teacher, is closely connected to Sheikh Farid um, and the Uamsho movement, but I don't know what his direct connection to Uamsho is. Um, and so I think one thing I'm trying to do right now is try to tease out the differences between some of these groups that are either called Salafi or you know who call themselves Salafi, so Amsar Sunnah, this Masjid Sunnah, Uamsho, like, and what their relationship is. Um, and unfortunately, I think it'll take the return trip to Zanzibar this summer to really you know, and some community participation in the research process to, to learn more about that. Um, I have tried a few times to interview um, uh, Juma Mazrui, but have been pretty unsuccessful. So hopefully in the future um, that'll work because I have many questions for him as well and kind of the work he um, perceives this, this text as doing. Uh, and in terms of the Mufti, the, the Mufti in Zanzibar, uh, yeah, so I, I actually interviewed the secretary of the Mufti, um, and I, I get the sense that they're not, I, I think that there's a bit of tension between Uamsho and the Mufti's office, or that's been a bit of a contentious relationship, but I don't know enough about the history. But in, in the interview that I had at the Mufti's office, um, there's this definite emphasis to like uh, de-emphasize the madahib and any kind of dispute you know, between the madahib. And whenever I would sort of do these interviews to try to get a sense of what the place of the madahib were, was in Zanzibar, you know, I'd have to use this sort of language of iktilaf instead of like, you know, kutofotian or something like that because immediately the conversation would be shut down. So iktilaf does seem to be, you know, like an amenable way of sort of approaching these issues. But even then, the term has so many different valences in the Swahili context. So. Um, yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what the Mufti's position is, but that thank you. It's a great question and for good for further research. 
Thanks also for your question, um, and that's a really great suggestion. So my intention is to um, look at a number of the many Islamic organizations that are working in education, as well as to um, engage with some of the um, official school teachers who are in, um, integrating Islamic education within to the public school system. I mean, there's such a wide range of um, government schools, um, even madrasas that are trying to blur boundaries between different kinds of knowledge and education. So that, that is for sure my intention to do. Thank you. Okay. And uh, so uh, uh, to your question, yeah, I mean, so a lot of the, stu a lot of the, 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 the students that ended up in Sudan uh, went there as already belonging to one of the various uh, Islamic reform movements in Somalia. But the, the, the movements in Somalia weren't all a Salafi. Uh, there is, for example, the, uh, the more predominant movement in, a, um, in Mogadishu, Al-Sheikh, uh, which many of the court's uh, members actually came from, uh, named after a, uh, a Sheikh Ahmed Ma'alim, uh, doesn't consider itself to be part of this uh, uh, sort of the Salafi Wahhabi, but it still considers itself to be a modern uh, Islamic movement. So it's a tr tricky situation uh, in that regard. I haven't heard of any of these young men uh, actually becoming members of, of, of Shabab. They are, of course, members of Al-Ittihad and Al-Islah and so forth and so on, but not, not Shabab. I haven't, I haven't come across, of course. Uh, and then in terms of what texts were used by the courts, the original Sharia courts used the, the well-known Shafi, Shafi manuals, uh, the Minhaj and so forth and so on. When the Union of Islamic Courts took over the city and was creating a unified court system, one of the, th one of the things they tried to do uh, and weren't able to do because they were a, uh, disbanded within six months because of an Ethiopian invasion was to actually introduce a codified uh, system. Uh, and they told me this with a lot of pride that you know they, they thought this was going to really create a, a sort of a, a more rational, a predictable uh, justice system. Uh, and, and not created on their own, but kind of you know copied from uh, the other, other Muslim countries like Egypt and so forth. Uh, so that's where they were headed. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and this this question of uh, whether it was a proto-state uh, and should be placed more along uh, the literature of state formation is one that's uh, sort of I'm, I'm struggling with. A lot of I think. Uh, what I was saying, and what you pointed out about uh, the bureaucratization, the, you know, building a hierarchical system, all of this kind of lead towards uh, something more like a, a, a modern uh, proto-state uh, in that direction. But there is also a, a history of a, a city-state uh, formation in the Horn of Africa, uh, where Islamic uh, legitimated authority had always played a central role. Uh, so I think that also needs to be thought about, it, it, whether it's, it, it's, it makes sense to, to kind of see the Union of Islamic Courts and the Sharia Courts and what they were doing along that long-term, long history and, and patterns within city-state formation in the Horn of Africa, uh, in Ethiopia, Somalia, of course the coasts, so forth and so on. So that I think is something that uh, uh, I'm struggling with, uh, exactly how to frame them. Um, and then to Professor uh, Solomon's question about. Quickly, because we'll be throwing up. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, that is... Right. They, they, they certainly were moving towards a... Yes. Okay, my, we'll my, on the dot, not on my watch. <laughs> I'm chair, now I'm six. So, join, please join me in thanking the uh, excellent Thank presenters and patients.